Open your Bibles with me, please, in the Word of God to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. We are um, stepping away this Sunday from our studies in Hebrews chapter 8, and I think you will see the relevancy of how what we have in Genesis 6 really complements what we're learning in Hebrews 8. And so turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, and we'll read the whole chapter, but I specifically would like for us to consider today verses 18 through 22. Genesis chapter 6. Hear the word of our God. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and beheld it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be three hundred cubits, the breadth of it fifty cubits, and the height of it thirty cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above. And the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower second, and third stories shalt thou make it. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons, and thy wife, and thy son's wife with thee. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort, shall thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female, of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind 
two of every sort shall come unto thee to keep them alive. And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food to thee, for thee, sorry, and for them. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. We find ourselves in Genesis chapter 6, shortly beginning to chronicle the story of mankind, human existence on the earth. And young ones, this is not a fairy tale. This is, despite things you see in coloring books, this is real human history. It's about 1,600 years into the history of mankind. And you can tell from the context in the whole chapter that we just read in chapter 6 that since the fall that is recorded approximately 1,500 to 1,600 years prior to this in the garden, chapter 2 of your, your Bibles, where Adam and Eve fell in the garden, sin entered into the world. And we see very quickly, shortly after a millennium, that's a 1,000 years, that sin, this horrible thing that came into the world, Look at what it has done through mankind and what he is doing to the earth that he has been called to steward and have dominion over. The text says repeatedly that we just read in this real history of us as humans that it was filled with violence. That sin had so darkened the minds of the humans at this time that all they could do was think about evil continually. Their thoughts, it says, was filled with violence, filled with evil. And God makes a decree that He's going to destroy the entire earth, all the living things with the breath of life, He says in the chapter, except for Noah, his wife, and his sons and their wife. They're the only ones that are going to receive any sort of benevolence, kindness, Any act of mercy from God, everyone else, the whole entire world shall die. There's an old saying that says God works in mysterious ways. Perhaps you have heard this, but not a few people, if any at all, know where that phrase originated from. Well, I looked that up and some believe, most believe that that phrase God works in mysterious ways comes from A writer in the year 1773 is an English poet by the name of William Cowper. While recovering from a deep mental and spiritual battle, he wrote a poem entitled Light Shining Out of Darkness. And this is just a portion of it, of where we get this phrase, God works in mysterious ways as we're standing back and considering God's decree of what he's going to do in response to the wickedness of man all over the earth. Quote, God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storms. And so this is where we believe the phrase God moves in mysterious ways comes from. Well, it is rather mysterious if you think about it, why God chooses to do it this way. Um, you and I, we might have thought, hey, you know, I put so much effort into creating something. Why destroy all of it? I mean, why don't I just send a plague to get rid of the bad people? And just leave Noah and his family. Um, why not raise up an army through the line of Shem, and uh, who you know can go against the descendants of Cain, who was doing all of this debauchery? Why not do it that way? You could do it that way. But God, He shows in this mysterious act of wanting to destroy the entire earth with a flood, much about Himself and much about ourselves as those who have inherited the fallen sinful nature of man. We see it really in the text, this lesson that we get about who God is and who we are, and how we need His unfailing benevolence toward us if we have any hope. It's all throughout the chapter. I know you would like for me to talk about right now, perhaps, you know, the sons of God coming with the daughters of men and so forth and all that. You can, I have an actual sermon on that you can find on Sermon Audio. But for our purposes today... What I want to do is just focus on what the text, naturally as it divides itself, is teaching us about God and ourselves with a special focus on verses 18 through 22 and God's unfailing benevolence toward Noah 
Notice with me that in the text in verses 1 through 7 that we learn that God is observing the thoughts and the actions of mankind. Did you see that in verses 1 through 7? In other words, the wickedness, the sins, the actions, the deceiving, the evil that they're doing doesn't escape the observation of God. And, and of course, this is the witness throughout the rest of the Scriptures. We saw this when we were in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 13, where the inspired writer said, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things, all things are naked and opened under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. In other words, part of God's nature that he's showing us here very early on in redemptive history is that he sees and he acknowledges all of the sins of man. He's not the God that the deists believed. That was many of our founding fathers. That He started and created the world, but He's really kind of just out there playing cosmic golf somewhere. And He's not watching. He's not involved. He's not governing through providence the affairs of men. No, this text early on in human history is revealing to us through the prophet Moses as he's inspired to record these things by the Holy Spirit. God is watching the evil affairs of what men do. And of course, this is very instructive because it brings to light, doesn't it? The truths of what we read elsewhere in the scriptures, such as Luke 8, Mark 4, 22. That the deceit and the evil secrets that man have will be brought to light. It is a fundamental element of God's law that in the created world, that which is kept deceitful and secret will be manifested. You can't escape it. It's in the book of Proverbs repeated. It's all through the Psalms repeated. This element of creation that is a balance of the law in which we exist in is that any secret sin, any deceits that we have that only you and you alone or I alone may have will be brought to light. Sure, it may be days. Could be months. Could be years. And sometimes our hearts break as the house of God when we see a minister stand who has deceitfully held things for decades. But God will not be mocked. It will be brought to light. Amen? And if it's not brought to light in this created realm, it will be manifested on that great day when we stand before His throne. And we will not have the things that we can only have in this physical realm that we can hide behind because there everything will be stripped away. So God's showing us very early on that He sees all things, right? And we see another thing in the text in verses 1-7, through this what we call anthropomorphic language. What do we mean by that, boys, young ones? What do we mean by that? When it says God is grieved or God repents, that's a way for the Holy Spirit to communicate to us not that God is like us as human beings where we get upset at times. And sometimes, depending on our emotional makeup, we can't even control ourselves when we get upset. Have you ever seen people that are 30 years old that act like they're 12 years old when they're upset? It's sad, right? It's sad. You feel sorry for the person. That's not God. That's not what the Bible is communicating to your young ones when you read that God repents, like He wished He changed His mind, or He is grieved, He's sad. It's the way that the Holy Spirit is communicating to us something about the grossness of their sins. Something about the seriousness of the transgressions that they committed against that holy law that God has placed upon their conscience when they were brought into existence. That's the way the Bible communicates to this information to us. So God in His perfect anger In His perfect wrath, He watches and He sees. And we see He's not pleased with their sins, is He? That's in verses 1-7. through But we notice as we're coming to our section of text I want to really deal with today, 18-22, through we see in sections 18-17, through God doesn't overlook these sins. He's just. He cannot overlook them. 
There will be consequences. There will be judgment for this. And what this shows us very early on in redemptive history with learning about God and learning about our sins is that He is just and that God will punish sin. There is a requirement because He is just and holy. There is a requirement for these transgressions. He cannot ignore them. If He does, He's no longer God. He's no longer just. He chooses in this part of human history to send a flood and destroy everyone as a punishment for their sins. But it instructs us very early on. And we see this repeated pattern about the nature of God all throughout the Bible. That when man sins, God notices it and God requires a payment for that sin. He requires justice to be had for the law that's been broken that He has established in His created realm. It shows us that God was completely just in His sentence. He's not, God's not unfair. Do you ever hear people talk about like that? Like, you know, it's not fair this has happened. <laughs> um, if you were in our house, especially I think, and this is still the case, you know, the kids are getting older now, and, and uh, you don't hear it so much because they learn very early on. You never said in our house, that's not fair. Because the response you would get from mother's law based upon these principles we're learning in the Bible is that the only thing that's fair is that we deserve hell. That's the only thing that's really fair. If we really want to get what we think we're entitled to, the truth of the witness of the Scriptures, the truth of our own conscience, is that really what we deserve is wrath. So God is not unjust in doing this. He's completely just. He's completely holy in His sentence upon mankind, particularly in the light of the fact of what, if we read Genesis 1-5, through we know they've had 120 years up until this point of this preacher named Noah going out and telling them, repent, repent. You've believed in the lies. You've believed in the lies. Go, you can go right now and talk to Methuselah. Methuselah's still alive. He'll tell you what happened. He'll, he'll tell you of the promise. He'll tell you of the serpent. He'll tell you of the promised seed. Repent, repent for 120 years. They said, no, we want to do things our own way. And besides, that fairy tale of that God, He's not real. Noah, you're crazy. You believe in this God you can't see. No, we're going to worship the trees. We're going to worship the moon. We're going to worship the sun. And we're going to live according to our own wicked imaginations. So yes, God was just, wasn't He, to do this. Yes, it's mysterious why He chose to do it this way. But He was completely just, even if we would think of there would be a different way to do it. He is full of patience. He's full of long-suffering. He's full of compassion. This is what leads the inspired psalmist in Psalms 86.15 to say, But thou, O Lord, are are a God full of compassion. And this is someone who's writing after centuries of watching the people rebel against God who have been given so much, but then God turn around and still be merciful to them, still help them to continue on, still later on in redemptive history bring them back to their land and help them to restore it. And so the Spirit inspires the psalmist to write, You are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth. Notice too, Another aspect of God's benevolence, His kindness to Noah. He provides Noah with the specific instructions as the means by which He is going to bring about His promise that He's made earlier in redemptive history of this promised seed. Uh, Israel that that can um, correct all of this chaos that's taken place. Here we know human history. You've got your little history book and you're reading it. All of this sin has taken root in creation. And for 1,500 years now and 1,600 years, all the world around know is evil and wicked. And God in His unfailing kindness and benevolence, what does He do? He tells Noah, I'm going to tell you exactly how to build the ark because exactly building the ark the way I tell you will guarantee that that promised Messiah that's going to come someday and crush the head of the serpent. And through Him, I will restore, I will make new, I will redeem this fallen, sickened world. I will make sure it will come to pass. So you see the kindness of God 
the unfailing benevolence of God? Shall we know exactly how to build it? How would you like it if God came to you and said, now listen, I'm going to include you in on something because, well, you've been a faithful servant to me. Listen, I'm going to destroy the world with a flood. And it's no surprise to you because you look around yourself for the last 120 years and you know what's going on. I want you to build an ark because when it comes, it's going to destroy everything. And um, good luck with that. I, you know, you'll, you'll do a good job. You're a sharp guy. Well, you'd kind of be left like, wow, Lord, how am I going to do this? You know, God shows Noah, notice in the text, verses 8 through 17, specifically with details of how to build it. He gives us as his people in this day and age as well, brothers and sisters, through this unfailing benevolence, through this unfailing mercy and kindness to us, specific things. And as we're going to see a moment later from Martin Luther, they're very simple. They're very, very simple. We are the ones who make them so complicated. He gives us these plans. He gives us these blueprints. We make them complicated. God doesn't. He's merciful. He's unfailing in His benevolence towards us. He helps His people. He gives us, He guides us with detailed blueprints of how to do what He's calling us to do. Well, now I want to draw our attention down to where we're going to spend the rest of our time together. And that's in verses 18 through 22. But with thee, he says to Noah in verse 18, while I establish my covenant. Interesting. But thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. Now what the Lord's doing here in verse 18, he's taking this revelation to Noah of what he's going to do through the destruction of the world. He's taking this revelation to Noah and how to build the ark. He's taking it to an all new level. And he's doing this for many reasons. But one of the reasons we're going to see in a moment is to give Noah even more the confidence and certainty that what's about to come, unprecedented, epic, in all of history, one of the most epic events. We can't even imagine what the world was prior to this antediluvian period. It's called the prior flood. We can't imagine what it was even like. He's going to make a covenant with Noah. A covenant is what he says in verse 18. So this unfailing benevolence, this unfailing kindness of this just and holy God that's going to bring destruction upon all of the earth except for this one man and his family is going to be channeled, it's going to be communicated here in verse 18 through what's translated in the English as covenant. Now this word that's translated here as covenant is used in the Bible, this Hebrew word, over 284 times. 264 of those times, it's translated in the English as covenant. It's translated 17 times as a league and one time as a confederate, which all has the same principles of meaning. And the way that this word is used throughout the Bible is it's used between covenants between two people, man to man. It's used between God and man, which we're reading about here today. When it's used in the Bible between man and man, it's describing a solemn promise connected with conditions. And prior to entering into that covenant with one another, the stipulations are laid out. The benefits and the blessings to each party is laid out. And so there is a lot of preparatory work between covenants between men. Now, the best way to express this is for you guys who are familiar with contracts. Uh, I'm in construction. And brothers and sisters, the covenant that I make with other parties, if I showed you the papers that we have to sign, you would see that is laid out in that covenant all the details of what we're going to do when we build this building. There's, In other words, the covenant is designed to remove any ambiguity, any hiding, any deceitfulness on each side of the party. Let me try to illustrate for you this way. I'm going to build a building. And I'm going to use, and this is no joke, Brother Eddie, you're in commercial construction, you'll appreciate this. I'm going to use 
in a very big masonry job, no joke, probably over a hundred different pieces of materials to put in this building. That the other person that I'm covenanting with, the architect, has said, this is what I want in my building. Now I could say to him, I'm going to make a covenant with you that I'm going to build your building the way that you want me to build your building. And we shake a hand and I walk away. And instead of buying the zinc coated screw, I buy a galvanized screw. Now why would I do that? Well, there's 50,000 screws on this job. And if I save a nickel on each one, you see, I gain money. Now, what is that? That's deceitful. That's secret. And he doesn't know I'm going to do that. So what does he do in the covenant arrangement? He makes a contract. And he says in there, if you do this, here's, it's spelled out before we enter the covenant. Here's the legal ramifications that you're agreeing that will take place afterwards. We're not going to go to small claims court, this and this, and we're going to do it this way. And I have to agree to that to enter into that covenant. This is how covenants look man to man. We do this oftentimes in the marriage covenant, don't we? You hear people, before they get married, they want to go through long, I think they're called, uh, me and Jessica didn't do this, but prenuptial agreements, right? Where they're, they're spelling out everything in the covenant that they're about to enter into. But here we see a picture of God entering into a league, a covenant with Noah in verse 18. Now, this is a a unique thing if you think about it. Because this is the creator of all things. And he's coming and he's binding himself in a covenant agreement with a created being, a man. And so God does, we see here in verse 18, and then we see it later on in the Bible, Genesis 15, 12, 15, and 17, he makes a covenant with Abraham, and then later, later with Moses, and then later with David, Etc., etc., right? We see that the Creator, He does make these arrangements, these contracts, these covenants with men, and He does so here in verse 18. And it's a very unique relationship. Wouldn't you agree that the Creator is coming? What, I mean, why don't He just do what he, what he pleases? He can do that. He's God. He doesn't have to make this covenant with Noah. He just tell Noah, I'm going to destroy the world. You build the ark, do this, do this, and just go about his business. But no, God, he, he, he in a way, he binds himself to this contract. Just, as a, just like I bind myself to the contract of building a building. Just like you bind yourself to the contract with your mortgage company. Just like men and women in here have bound themselves in a marriage covenant. They've come and they've laid out everything and they've said, this is what I agreed to. God does that with a man named Noah here. Now, where does this unusual event happen in the Bible? Or I should say it like this. Where does this unique event uh, originate? Who, who, what party does it originate with? Well, it originates with God, doesn't it? That's who it originates with. I will establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark. With thee will I establish my covenant. And so this covenant arranger, this contract that God's making with Noah begins with God. So that's the one thing we notice when God makes covenants with men, it originates with him. Again, reflecting unfailing benevolence. Noah, he's a servant of the Lord and he's going to have to do something very hard. And so to help him, God makes this covenant with him. Now Noah would have very well understood what a covenant was because he's done them with men other men like we just described before covenants are the very fabric of any society agreements compacts contracts Uh, this is the only way we can move forward with anything and notice that when god makes this covenant with noah he reveals it to noah it's not a secret it originates with god and praise be to god he revealed it to noah Noah knows that the creator of all heavens and all earth who has the power to destroy this earth, he's coming to me and he's making a covenant with me. There's an acknowledgement. There's a revelation of it. And notice there's a means to the covenant. It's the ark. It's the vessel. That's going to be the means by which God's going to fulfill this covenant to Noah. So there's a means connected to it. So when God makes a covenant with man, it originates with him. He reveals it, the man is aware of it, and there are means or stipulations attached to it. And then God, we will notice in this covenant, when he does it with all of his covenants with men, he 
establishes it with signs, which we'll know in a moment later on. It's the rainbow. Notice also this covenant outlines the benefactors. It's going to be Noah's wife and Noah's sons and Noah's sons' wives. The immediate context of this covenant is no doubt with Noah and his children. But if we stand back and we look at all redemptive history of why the Lord is doing this with Noah because of what he's promised earlier, do you not see this grand connection with the Noahic covenant, with the really eternal gospel message that God is communicating to all of humankind from the very beginning? That I will crush the head of the serpent and he will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman? Because this is the channel it's going to come through. Let's consider for a moment, as we see in verse 18, that this is revealed to Noah, and Noah then therefore is going to benefit greatly from it. But not just Noah, but also his children. Let's consider the covenant's blessing to Noah as a man first, and then we'll consider the blessings that came to his family. Because they also were benefactors of this covenant that God made with him. First of all, doesn't this guard Noah from the terror and the fear of pending death and the flood? That's why it's a blessing that he revealed it to Noah. He not only tells Noah how to build the ark, but he says, now I'm going to covenant with you. I'm going to covenant with you that I'm going to protect you. That would immediately console the heart and mind of Noah of the fear and intrepidation that was just announced about destroying the world. Now, the easy parallel that, to that is that the covenant relationship you have that we've been learning about in the book of Hebrews with Jesus Christ as the high priest and the mediator of that covenant, that better covenant, that second covenant, it's called in Hebrews that new covenant. You have, do you not, beloved, as that is revealed to you through the Spirit and in the Word, that comfort that no matter what is going on in the society around you, if I may use the parallel with Noah's days and ours days, you have that assured rest and that promise that God has you in Christ. Christ, as if it were, is that ark, and you're in that covenant ark, right? So it would have provided Noah that immediate blessing that Noah would have received. And just like the divine instructions of how to build the ark, it insulated Noah from the mockeries of his surrounding world. Knowing that you have been covenanted with in Christ, just like Noah, he was covenanted directly with God in this arrangement, it would have insulated him from all the mockeries. You guys can mock all you want. But God has revealed to me personally that he is with me in this endeavor, in this Call of duty, you could say. He's with me. And so with that, it insulates you as a barrier. We hear a lot today of Christians that quote-unquote deconstruct. They, they, they're talked into doubting the validity of their faith. And they walk away from their profession and their confession in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just often realize, I, I wonder if the Holy Spirit ever revealed, to, truly revealed to them and brought them into the better second new covenant of grace. Because with that comes a certainty that no matter what mockery, no matter what doubts, no matter what evidences may present themselves, I am Christ and He is mine. It insulates you from those mockeries. People can say what they want. People are saying things about you perhaps right now. Unbelieving family members. They get up every Sunday morning. There's so much fun and things you can do. You could do this. You could do that. You know. But they get up and they spend their day at church talking about things they cannot see and they cannot prove. Oh, those poor people. You see the mockeries. Oh, but those mockeries have no effect on us, brothers and sisters, do they? When you know through the Holy Spirit it's been revealed to your heart that you've been brought in covenant with Christ... Noah was insulated from those mockeries through this blessed covenant that he received directly from God as he was building the ark and his surrounding peers were mocking him. Also, thirdly, I think one blessing that comes from knowing this covenant arrangement that he has with God, it would comfort him. How would it comfort him? It would comfort him that all of this work 
all of the sacrifice that I'm putting in and doing what God's telling me to do, it's going to be rewarded. It's going to be blessed. Now parallel that with what we have in a much greater way, a much more superior way in the covenant with Christ as our mediator, as our representative, as our high priest in the new covenant. Promised that through this pilgrim journey, we have that celestial city waiting on us. Promised that He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. You see the parallels here of what a revealed covenant interest, ownership in, has for your soul, has for your heart, has for your pilgrim journey. Now look at verse 19. He says in verse 18, I will establish my covenant and thou, Noah, shall come into the ark. Thou, and now he includes other people, other benefactors of this covenant arrangement, and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. And now this causes us to consider that the covenant recipient, Noah, is also going to have his family blessed. First of all, they, like Noah, are kept from pending death. So, We see God comes to Noah and establishes the covenant with Noah. But he's not the only one blessed by that covenant arrangement that God makes with him. There's other people that will receive benefits of this arrangement that God's making with Noah. And in this context, immediately, the immediate benefactors is his wife and his sons and their wives. But the extended benefactors is all the human race that come after them, right? God's never destroyed it again. So Noah is the one that God makes the covenant with. Noah's the one that's the representative of the covenant. He was the one that the text says in verse 8 that God had uh, grace upon Noah, its representative. Noah's the one who it says is described as a righteous man. If it wasn't for Noah, his wife and his sons would have been in a whole lot of trouble, wouldn't they? You see the connection there? Noah's the representative. God makes the covenant with Noah. He does this later with Abraham. He does this later with Moses. He does this later with David. And then as we've been learning in Hebrews, he did it in an eternity past with someone else, which you and I gain interest in and benefit from that blessed covenant called the new covenant. He made that arrangement with a representative and it is the son, right? Well, so we're seeing a pattern here. Noah's family benefited from Noah's representative position in this covenant arrangement. Think of other benefits they would receive, not just escaping death. As being attached to Noah, the representative of this covenant that God is making with him, they would have witnessed the power of God as Noah would have preached to the unbelieving generation of his day. They would have heard over and over the promises of the gospel through the preaching of Noah. They wouldn't have had that benefit if they weren't connected with Noah. Maybe, you know, they lived somewhere really far off and they didn't hear it. You see the connection of being his family in that covenant arrangement. They benefited from that. I remember when I was thinking about this of Brother Grizz last week, and I think it was during the prayer time, he was really encouraging us, wasn't he? That, that gentle reminder It's not a legalistic reminder, brothers and sisters. It's a gentle reminder of the blessings we have of gathering together throughout the week to read our Bibles and to sing hymns with one another and pray with one another as families. Amen. You remember what Grizz said? It seems as though he talked very specifically to the children. He said, oh, how I wish I would have grown up in a home where my father would have opened the Bible and read it and my mother would have prayed with me. He said that. Why did he say that? Because he understood that there's a connection. There's a connection through the parent to the covenant. What kind of connection? In this context, the connection, let's be very clear here. The connection would have been, they would have heard the gospel. That's the connection. That's the blessing that these children of Noah would have received. They would have been privy to. They would have heard of. They would have been been knowledgeable of their need to repent and trust in the promise that Noah was pointing all of his generation to. So we cannot escape here in this covenant, through Noah being its representative, that his family also were blessed by it. They indeed were. It's very similar today, as we just said. Those of us who are believers, and not the Noahic covenant, but in the covenant we've been learning about in Hebrews, oh, our children are blessed. They do receive many blessings from it. 
And the blessings can be directly paralleled with what Noah's children received. And that is acknowledgement of the gospel. Acknowledgement of the truth. They are hearing in their ears from their parents the blessed promises of their creator God. We note, however, now, as we're talking about this, that although with their external senses, this covenant did in great, it greatly impacted Noah's children. It would have. They would have. Think about this. They're being saved from death. They've heard, they know why they're going into the ark because Noah's been preaching it. And so they're receiving these external blessings to being ushered in by their connection with Noah into the ark to not avoid death. Notice, it nonetheless did not give them or impart to them saving faith. We know that, don't we? Because shortly after, in the account of Genesis, what does Ham do? Ham's cursed because he sins a sin that will not be forgiven against his father. And then Ham goes on to be the great patriarch of the city of Babel, doesn't he? And all the Canaanites, the idolatrous, wicked people. Well, this is interesting because even in this picture in redemptive history of God very early on covenanting with man, we do recognize that there is an external blessing to those that are connected to that representative of this covenant, namely his wife and his children. But it is just that. It is just an external blessing. It doesn't impart, it doesn't mediate inwardly saving faith, i.e. the example of Ham. Something else has to do that, right? And isn't this what we've been learning over in Hebrews, brothers and sisters? This is the principle that we see covenant after covenant in the Old Testament. They cannot do only what the better covenant can do through the mediator, through the representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, although by their blood relationship with Noah, his children did, yes, immediately receive temporal physical blessings, but it did not grant them eternal, everlasting spiritual blessings, which can only be granted through faith alone. Now there's an important observation regarding the Noahic covenant that we need to make here. First of all, it's this. While it was gracious and beloved, in many respects, it in and of itself was not salvific in a spiritual respect. It was preserving their life for a very specific purpose, to bring forth a seed through the line of Abraham. Secondly, to state it another way, by obeying and entering into the ark, Noah's children did not automatically receive saving faith. Now this, I've already been kind of building on it, but it does bring into aspect for us an interesting light of understanding God's covenants with man at this point. So let's just pause and kind of recap it real quick. First of all, we learn from Romans chapter 5 that the covenant arrangement that God made with Adam, Adam, according to Romans 5, acts as a representative of that covenant that God made with the first man what Romans 5 is all about. Through Adam, we've all failed. And we say this often, and you've, you've, you've learned this. Hey, wait a minute, I wasn't in the garden with Adam. Why am I being punished for that? Because he was our representative as the first man. And so his sin, the curse of his sin, is passed on through all of his posterity, right? We're seeing this connection that there's representatives of the covenant. We come again here to Noah. We see another pattern that God uses a representative to be a head of the covenant. And there are people that benefit through that representative. First of all, Noah's family, and then us here today. We're all benefiting from this Noahic covenant in our connection as descendants of Noah and as mankind, right? It's never been, there's never been a flood, and there never will be another flood. This is the exact reoccurring theme when God makes these arrangements throughout the Bible. When he did it with Abraham, it was going to be Abraham's physical descendants that were going to be blessed. 
When he did it with Moses, Moses was the representative that would communicate all of the covenant boundaries and rules and your relationship to the nation of Israel with its prophet Moses is how you would be benefited from it. And he did it again with David. He made a covenant with David. And it would be David's house and their connection with the representative of David that would receive the blessings of what God promised David. And it so is the very same principle. It's the same way that God is in relationship to you and I in what we've been learning about in the book of Hebrews, the new covenant. The representative of that new covenant, the representative of that better covenant that gives us what none of these could do, a new heart, a circumcised heart. As we've been learning in Hebrews, established on the Psalms and established all through the Old Testament, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the representative of that covenant that mediates, that gives, that administers faith, that changes our heart. And so the only way that anyone we see at this point, as we stand back and we say, well, who in the world could ever say that they have uh, a, a participation in that new and better covenant? They have to be in connection with Him who represents it, the Lord Jesus Christ. How are you in connection with that representative, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is only one way you, be, you could be ever connected with Him, either as your judge or your Savior. Right? And so as your Savior, you repent and you believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before the cross, they didn't know His name was Jesus Christ. It was Messiah. After the cross, it is Jesus Christ. And through that, and through that alone, that connection with Him You have an interest in, you have an ownership of the blessings of that better covenant, that circumcised heart, that eternal salvation. If you don't have a connection with Jesus Christ, you cannot claim any sort of ownership of that blessed covenant of grace that he mediates and he's a priest of. Can you? There is no one in Noah's generation that it could have come up and knocked on the door and said, hey, buddy, open up that door in there. Don't you see what's going on out here? Come on, I have, an, uh, I have a promise to me. I have a promise owed to me because of that covenant God made with you and your family. What would Noah's response be? No, hey, uh, you didn't hear the covenant right because it's to me and it's to my physical family right here. You're not in that list. So you have no right to the blessing of coming into this covenant. You have no interest in coming in to this ark. You didn't get the ticket. I'm sorry. Now fast forward to where we're at in Hebrews. This covenant that administers salvation. Its representative is Jesus Christ. You only have interest in, participation in that covenant through your relationship with Him as Savior. Ross, if you have that, if you have that, that does not automatically give it to your children. While we pray that the Holy Spirit would open their eyes, and while we, yes, in the external blessings of of being connected to us, we point them to the representative of this covenant, on that last day, Not one of any of the offspring that we have, beloved, can come and pound on the door and say, I must be let in because my parent, my grandparent, my uncle, my aunt possessed interest in the covenant. And I'm a descendant of them, so I get to be let in. You poor soul. You poor soul, the response will be. Depart me from me, I never knew you. It's so unfortunate that you were taught a gross misunderstanding of my covenant relationship to my people through my Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, where you were told that you were a covenant child of mine and you've hoped in that, you were baptized in that, and you've held on to that through all your life only to find out you never knew me and I never knew you. 
You never fell on your face and you never in humility repented of your sins of what nailed my son upon the cross, the representative of the covenant whose blood it was that sealed this covenant. And you may lay no iniquity, uh, filthy hand upon the purity of this covenant until your heart has been purified. You're locked out. You cannot come in. Whenever we're examining uh, at this point in our message any of the covenants in the Bible, I want to give you four things to ask to remember to help you navigate what people are saying. And we see it here in this text. Who is the representative of that covenant? So the first thing would be the head of that covenant. Who's the head? In this case, who is it? AJ, is it Moses? No. It's Noah, right? In this case, is the representative or the head of the covenant Jesus? No. It's Noah. God is making the covenant with Noah. And everyone who's connected with Noah, 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 Noah. That's an old car, isn't it, Noah? Uh, Noah is going to be is going to be blessed in some way through this covenant. But secondly, the thing you want to ask yourself is who are the constituents of the covenant? The constituents of the covenant. Who's the representative and who are the constituents? In this case, the constituents is Noah's wife, his sons, and his wives, right? And then the constituents would be, after the flood, everyone who's a human being on the face of the earth. And in some degree, we're not going to go down a rapture on here, but even the creepy crawly things and all the fowls of the earth and those who come off the ark. They're constituents of the covenant with Noah, aren't they? And then, ask yourself, what are the conditions to be a constituent in this covenant? What's a condition? In this case... It's pretty easy. You just had to be related to Noah, right? Uh, and then subsequently after, be a human being after him. But all the covenants in the Bible are like that. And you can ask, what are the conditions in order to be a constituent in this covenant, in order to receive the blessings of the covenant? And then lastly, a good thing to always ask yourself when you're considering covenants or hearing people talk about covenants, who's in the covenant, who's not in the covenant, you can always ask, what is the promise or blessing that the constituents will receive. Now, do you see? Do you see why in the book of Hebrews that author is so jealous with zeal to guard the clarity of this issue? Do you see why? He's speaking to first century Jews who have been converted out of Judaism. Um, you're not Aaron. <laughs> you're my son-in-law. <laughs> oh, this is so bad, Fraser. Do you see, Brother Fraser? Do you see, Brother Fraser, why he would have been wanting to crystallize in their thinking and their understanding because they have always been told they were the covenant people of God? but it was only in an external sense. And they have professed to have renewed hearts in the gospel, and they're tempting to go back to that old covenant. And he wants to clarify the covenant arrangement that God has with them, this special, this better one, so that they don't confuse the two. You have been made a recipient and have been blessed by something far superior. Don't ever think of confusing it with the other. Friends, as the old saying goes, not much has changed. Not much has changed. There are many people, especially in our context in the Reformed community, that tell people they are in the covenant of grace that Christ is the representative of, they're told they're constituents. They're told that there's conditions to that covenant of grace in order to receive its blessings. 
But what's the main thrust of every gospel message that Paul, Peter, James, and John preached? It is by grace, through faith, through Christ alone. Right? We must repent and believe, and that's all a work of Him. That's how you enter into the reception of the blessings and the promises through that condition and that condition alone. Without that condition, you're not a constituent. You shouldn't be told you're a a constituent. You shouldn't receive any of the signs and the sacraments that are associated with this covenant arrangement, which only are meant for constituents. Right? You see how this is all so relevant. An old particular Baptist um, named Nehemiah Cox in a book that he wrote on the covenants, he said this. Like I said, there's nothing new. We're still dealing with these things. One error admitted about the nature of God. I'm sorry. one, One error admitted about the nature of God's covenantal transactions with men does strangely, if you make it, he says the the result is this, it does strangely perplex one's whole system or one's entire body of divinity and entangle our interpretation of innumerable texts of Scripture. You get these four things wrong that I'm trying to clarify for us today through the example of Noah and in contrast to the uh, mention of the New Covenant in the book of Hebrews. If you get off of one of those, it entangles, he says, an innumerable interpretation of the text of Scripture. That's so true. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, I don't have it in front of me. He's got a good quote that's very similar to this. That this one aspect that you and I are going through right now as a church of understanding how God relates to mankind through covenants. Brothers and sisters, take notes. Pray about it. Think through it. It will tremendously help you as you read and study your Bibles and as you listen to other ministers preach. Well, time doesn't afford us to really unpack what we see the benefit of God revealing this to Noah motivates him to do and what it really ought to motivate the uh, the, the people in the book of Hebrews who are members of the new covenant to do when they're made aware through a circumcised heart that they possess Christ through this wonderful covenant they have with Christ. But notice just briefly that Noah, what does he do after this? This covenant revelation does many things at this point. It goes from an aspect of internal workings, which I mentioned earlier, uh, having security from the fear and terror of the judgment coming, having comfort that you know all of this is going to result in rewards. You remember, that's more internal and in in strengthening his faith. But notice now that having and being made aware of his covenant with God and his ownership in that covenant as a constituent of that covenant, notice how it motivates him to action. He puts in effort, doesn't he, beloved, in verses 19 to 21. It took work, sweat, and sacrifice to build that ark. What's fueling him, Brother Eddie? What's motivating him? What's what's getting him up on Sunday morning to come to the house of God, if you allow me that parallel, right? To keep going forward in this drudgerous, hard thing that God's called him to do. It's this covenant that he has with God. He knows it's from the Lord. It took much thought. It took much planning. And his interest in that covenant... Now you hear the harmony with the rest of the Bible. His interest in that covenant was proved how? Verse 22 tells us it was proved by his obedience. It was proved by his work. Wasn't it? Isn't that what James says? How do you know if someone possesses the interest of the new covenant? Jumping over to Hebrews. That only Jesus Christ can do through a circumcised heart. You're going to see it in their lives. Now we know when we read the book of Romans chapter 7, we know even when we read Galatians and we know when we read James. And in fact, we read all the New Testament. It's not. And then we read in the life of Noah too, amen? It's not a squeaky clean, perfect, consistent 
uh, exhibition of good works, but there is, praise be to God, there is a change. There is some sort of consistency and and, and a desire to have obedience and good works. That's what we see with someone who's been brought into the new covenant. Listen to what Martin Luther says here. As we come to a close. The particular praise, Luther says, of Noah's faith is that he stays on what he calls the royal road. He adds nothing, changes nothing, and takes nothing away from God's directive, but abides completely by the command that he hears. And listen to what Luther says. The most common and at the same time the most pernicious plague in the church of Christ is this. Either a change is made in what God has commanded, or something is superimposed upon what God has commanded. Either a change is made to what God has commanded, or something is superimposed, added to what God's commanded. That's the pernicious plague of the church. This error, Luther goes on to say, is very common. God has the habit of commanding ordinary, unimportant, simple, laughable, and at times even offensive things for His servants to obey. But it's not good enough for us many times. We want to change what He commanded or we want to superimpose upon what He's commanded because it just can't be that simple. It can't be, you know, that's laughable to think that. We started off by considering that God's ways are mysterious. And indeed, at this point in human history, it must have been very odd to Noah to have been commanded to construct this vessel that had never been done before. It would have brought him into great mockery and ridicule of his culture that he lived in. But nonetheless, we observe that the benevolence, the unfailing kindness of God through revealing His covenant with Noah and how much more, beloved, we're learning in the book of Hebrews we have through the covenant of grace with Jesus Christ directly, God displays His mysterious ways. Brothers and sisters, let us leave today's test not asking, I wonder why God did it this way, but rather, why did He do it at all? Why in the covenant of grace would He have saved any of us to begin with? He owed nothing to Noah. He owed nothing to mankind. He owed nothing to creation. He owed nothing to ill-deserving sinners like us. But just as Noah found grace in verse 8 in, in the eyes of the Lord, we know according to Romans 5.8 that we found grace only by the sovereign mercy and love of Almighty God. The Scriptures tell us there in closing, God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ, the mediator, the representative of this covenant that we belong in, that is being explained in Hebrews 8. Christ, that mediator, He died for us. He gave us that interest in His blessed covenant through which He will dispense blessings in which upon our pilgrim journey at the end, He will give us that crown of life and He will give us our our pilgrim's dues, our pilgrim's rewards. This is what we got to look forward to. And so, I hope that, you know, as we look just here at Genesis chapter 6 and kind of looked at a couple aspects of the covenant that God made with Noah, that it adds a little bit of content to what we're seeing over in Hebrews 8 in the arrangements that God makes with man and even more importantly that the Father made with the Son in the covenant of grace, the better covenant, the new covenant, the second covenant, the superior covenant that you and I just celebrated in the Lord's Supper. All of these things work together for the purpose of edifying our souls, strengthening our faith, encouraging and reminding us that Jesus Christ is our Lord of Lord and King of Kings. We have as constituents in His kingdom a surety and a promise not based upon us, but based upon His work on the cross in our stead. Amen? Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we do, Lord, thank Thee 
That, Father, you show us all throughout redemptive history a very clear pattern through these covenant arrangements, these unique relationships that you commit yourself to as the Creator with created men. Father, we thank you that we see that you deal with man in those covenants, Lord, as a representative. You choose a man, you choose someone, a person to be the representative of the covenant. And Lord, by that also, there is constituents. You make it clear how people are made members of those covenants. And Lord, you reveal the conditions or the means by which those, con- those constituents can belong and receive the blessings that are promised in those covenants. Help all of this, Lord, frame questions for us to truly appreciate and understand what we possess through our representative, the Lord Jesus Christ, as His sheep, as His people, as His constituents. Through the conditional, Lord, of repentance and faith, by which we are given a new heart, the promise of this blessed covenant, this new heart that, O Lord, insulates us from the mockeries of this world, this new heart, O God, that we have by your precious Spirit working within us to, Lord, insulate us from our own doubts, our own, Lord, uh, weary trials, Father, that, that uh, tempt us to give up. Lord, thank you that you show us these things in your word, that we may rightly handle, as Nehemiah Cox said, your interpretation of an innumerable amount of Scripture. Father, bless, I pray, all of us as we're going through these studies and trying to become more grounded and more fixed in understanding these things. And we do it all, O God, because You revealed it in Your Word for the sake of establishing us. Lord, for the sake of strengthening our faith. For the, Lord, the purpose of edifying the body grounding us more in the perfect work and the perfect righteousness of our representative, the Lord Jesus Christ. These are fundamental gospel issues. And we pray, God, that you would help us to be the Bereans, that you, through your Apostle Paul, have called us to be, to grow in the grace and also the knowledge, the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you. Thank you for this very day. For this time, we've been able to gather and worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, we pray and give you thanks. Amen.